The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. Order. You're listening to the Irish Times Inside Politics Podcast. It's Wednesday, December the 28th, and you're very welcome to this special end-of-year politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Joining me in studio today, equipped with crystal balls, tarot cards, chicken entrails, and sundry other tools of the predicting trade, are columnist Una Mullally, political editor Pat Leahy, and columnist and literary editor Fintan O'Toole. Finton, 2017, I'm going to go to you first because you have a remarkably good track record. We rooted out a column of yours from <laughs> January of, of, of this year in which you predicted a whole bunch of things which you said might or might not come to pass, most of which seemed most unlikely, but a few of them turned out to be true after all. Yeah, I mean, it was one of those columns where you just kind of say, look, let's start to think about how bad could it get, you know, <laughs> and, and you sort of push the boat out of it. And um, yeah, the, that column's kind of circulated around a bit now. People saying, "Oh, you know, he, this guy really obviously <laughs> you know, predicted stuff. everything." You know, <laughs> um, and it was really—I was just trying to say in, the, in that column, and I think it's kind of still true, which is that you know, there's a fundamental instability in the world, you know, which is which is caused by the simple fact that the whole promise of the post-war capitalist world was that if you keep your head down, work hard, be a good citizen your life is going to get better and your kids' lives are going to get better. I mean, that, that second bit of it being the most important thing, you know. So, and it, it, you know, by and large, I mean, of course, there's huge qualifications, but by and large, in the Western world, in the industrialised world, it was possible for most people to believe, look, I'll put up with really awful stuff. I'll do a dreadful job. You know, so my, my, my father could work on the buses. A bus conductor hated the job. But he could think quite reasonably, you know, actually, my kids are going to have a better life. You know, they, they might be able to do more interesting jobs. They might be able to travel. They might be able to, you know, have a, an optimistic kind of future. And that sort of stalled, that, that fundamental thing has really stalled for very large numbers of people around the Western world. And when it stalls, you know you're in trouble. I mean, you know that, in, in a sense, that the trajectory of societies matters hugely. So it's not just their kind of current state, but how people feel they're going. And if people feel they're slipping away, you know, that actually the ground beneath their feet is no longer uh, stable, but actually it's falling backwards all the time. We know historically that it gets nasty and that, you know, all bets are off, that anything can happen then. You know, you're into a situation in which people begin to feel, I don't have a stake in this. So I'm really happy to kick it. And they're really happy to kick it even when they're breaking their own foot. You know, uh, uh, and we just know that's the so, way so this is works. the type of thing. And we're familiar yeah. with, I mean, I should say that among the things you predicted were that Britain would vote for Brexit, that there'd be a potential breakup of the uh, of the UK, that it would put further strains on the EU, that somebody, and this did seem like a particularly out there prediction back in January, that that. Uh, President Donald Trump would would become a reality. There were a few other things that haven't happened yet, like I think the collapse of China, which uh, yeah, maybe we can look forward to that. In you know? <laughs> <laughs> that would be uh, longer term. But uh, but, yeah. but that that impulse uh, that, that you described there, the Brexit impulse, Pat, the um, the I just want to blow it up because I have no interest in the continuation of the present system. That does seem to be a, a powerful uh, political force in, in, in Western democracies at the moment. It is, and I suppose like an awful lot 
else that affects you know the the, the forces that underpin political movements over uh, over the last number of years it is one of the results of the of the great recession now the uh, you know the, the the collapse of expectations or the undermining of expectations that Finton uh, correctly I think refers to. I mean, I put it a slightly different way. I think I have done that. It's that the, the, your, the typical liberal democracy can no longer meet the expectations of many of its citizens now. So the question is whether those expectations are adjusted or whether we're entering a period of quite profound and possibly structural change in those democracies. I mean, certainly. Uh, you know, if, if, if you know, if you look at what Donald Trump has said, and that you know, we'll go into our predictions for 2017. I guess, uh, I guess, over the course of this conversation, but it seems to me the biggest question is: Does Donald Trump do the things that he said it would, uh, that he said he would do? And he talked, you know, about a withdrawal from the international norms uh, on the part of the United States, uh, the country that has underpinned those, the norms of, of, of trade, the military alliances, the international institutions. There have been this sort of scaffolding for the world that Finton described. Now, he is talking about withdrawing from them. Now, he has said lots of things that he won't do. I think it's the big uncertainty and perhaps the most important question of 2017 is whether he do he does uh, whether he does those things and if he does proceed to do them i think that the effects of that will be felt everywhere and will exacerbate the sort of effects of Fintan is talking Uno, about in the- terms of people's expectations of of what their but what the political mm. and social organisations that we have evolved over uh, over several decades can do for them in their lives. One of the things that that that, that strikes me, Una, is because of the dramatic events of the and largely unpredicted events of of the last year or so, is that looking forward, casting for our eyes forward towards what might happen in a selfish way to us, to this, to in in this country in 2017, we're always subject to the forces of of you know international the international economy and international geopolitics, but those seem particularly turbulent and seem to be the things that might affect us most directly next time, which perhaps means that we have even less control than we thought we did. Over, yeah, well, uh, I think the big un- unknown for Ireland um, next year is, is Brexit. I mean, we don't know what's going to happen, what ramifications there are going to be in terms of trade and movement over the next couple of years, um, in terms of borders, in terms of all of those things. There is no uh, blueprint or roadmap to that. And I think that's going to be the the great unknown for Ireland over the next couple of years, because, you know, as well as these kind of expectations um, being eroded that people might have of how they can, you know, live fulfilling lives and also feel feel powerful, you know, because a lot of the stuff that's happening around the world is is empire nostalgia as well. Um, The other thing is that the people offering supposed solutions for this are tapping into populism related uh, to it which kind of includes Brexit and Trump and get into Europe later is that they're not offering any solutions (laughs) you know so they're not offering any other big idea other than um, you know fascism um, you know racism uh, closing themselves off from from the rest of the world so when it comes to, to, to Ireland next year I think you know the ongoing conversation about Brexit. The Trump thing is, you know, an existential crisis for the world. And I don't even worry about the things that 
you know, will he do the things he said he'll do or things that he promised during the campaign or whatever? I think that's the least of our worries. It's more so, what will he do that we don't know yet? Well, also um, one thing, one, one of the one observer I was reading about the American presidency says one of the important things to be really aware of with the American presidency is it's at the centre of everything that happens. So events come at come at the person in that position, and we've seen that with all you know, with Obama and his predecessors. And it's how how people deal with and react to and what you yeah, know key I, decisions I the, they make the, in reaction to those the, events. His, um, you know, the danger of his reactions are more worrying than whatever he does proactively you know how he's actually going to be dealing with what is an incredibly unstable world at the moment is absolutely terrifying it's a question of temperament uh, i suppose the yeah, temperament of the person which is yeah. you know deeply deeply questionable on the evidence of what we have so far to some extent his uh, his his domestic powers will be or, or the powers he has to introduce changes that we might not like people in the United States might not like uh, domestically are constrained by Congress albeit that it is a Republican control, uh, controlled con- Congress but they're uh, they are constrained because of the the structure the power structure of the American presidency he's much greater powers individually over and executively over uh, foreign affairs and trade simply because that was the way the office was uh, was uh, was designed at the time but Una's right there is a a really profound question over the temperament of uh, uh, of Donald Trump and therefore how he reacts to the sort of challenges as he says come at him uh, uh, come at him day to day and it, we we often I think ignore the importance of temperament on uh, on the part of political leaders I think we'll probably be forced to pay a lot more attention. To it over the coming There's year. also, I mean, Fintan, in addition to, to, the, to that temperament issue, which is, you know, is certainly very worrying, it's his actual process, if you can dignify it with that word, which is, by its nature, improvisational. That's the way in which he he ran his campaign and is continuing to run this intermediary period at the moment. That it's it, his whole processes are based upon this idea of gut reactions, off the cuff, uh, say things that you know not to be true. Um, with a, I mean, many people have characterised this as a kind of as a as a deliberate you know ball of confusion which he throws up you know as a deliberate strategy. Yeah, yeah you know. Uh, I think in the immediate aftermath of the presidential election in the States, there was a kind of, even liberals were saying, he's not going to be that bad. You know, he was a showman. He was putting on a show during the primaries and during the general election. And really, he's going to be much more pragmatic and, and sensible uh, leader than, uh, than he projected himself as being. Um, and I think that was very, very quickly um, collapsed as a, as a notion. I mean, it, and, and, you know, why should he be able to change? I mean, he's... You know, he's 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 into his seventies. It's not like he's a sort of callow forty-year-old. You know, uh, and you look at his appointments. You know, he's this is a militantly reactionary administration. So it's not just about Trump. He has created. Uh, it's not a conservative administration at all. It's a, it's an administration which is absolutely focused on rolling back uh, environmental uh, regulation, banking regulation. Um, any controls on the energy industry. Um, it's, it's, it's a ca- captive administration by people who have really radical agendas. And Trump, you know, has signaled very strongly that he's just going to let them get on with it, right? So, so Trump is not going to micromanage. He's, because he's not capable of doing that, he can't concentrate for more than half an hour. But he's put people in place who are going to start doing these very, very radical things. 
And the question then with, with, with Trump, I think, and with Brexit, actually, it's, it's going to happen with both of them. Key question, I think, for 2017 is how quickly do the people who supported Trump and who supported Brexit begin to realise that they were had? You know, the, both phenomena are essentially fraudulent. Right? So they're not fascists, right? Whatever much you like to call fascists. Fascists are really serious people. Right? They, 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 know, they, they intend to do exactly what they say they will do. And they have really radical sets of programs, you know, which, which, which have really kind of very obvious outcomes. Trump uh, has, he's going to let the loose affiliation of millionaires and billionaires get on with rolling back all the regulation. And then the question is, what else can he do? Because that's not going to please the people who voted for him. The people who voted for him were not interested in dismantling banking regulation. For well, example. some of them were, but quite a lot of them yeah, were. Yeah, the, the main, mm. the, you know, the really kind of core constituency. They're interested in who the hell is going to, you know, make my life better. Who's, who's going to actually make my community not this wasteland that it is right now. And they expect the jobs to come back. They expect the steel mills to reopen. You know? And they're not, it's not going to happen. There is absolutely no possibility of Trump doing the fundamental stuff that he needs to do, which is, which is to actually make the lives of those people better. In fact, their lives are going to get substantially worse. The, the education system, which is already dire in many of those places, is going to be privatised. Uh, welfare payments are probably going to be attacked for a lot of those, of, of, of those communities. Healthcare... You know, like just take the simple thing. Who are the people who who Obama brought into healthcare? You know, under Obamacare, they're the poor, they're the you know working class people who who were otherwise uncovered, and they voted for someone who says. And what Trump said was, "You're not only going to get Obamacare, you're going to get much better than Obamacare, but at a fraction of the cost." <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a complete lie. So, at what point did they realize? Oh, he was lying about that. Actually, you know, and what he's actually going to do is just take away the healthcare I have. I'm going to go back to being uninsured. I'm going to go back into that deep insecurity, which was the very thing that made me vote for someone like Trump in the first place. With Brexit, you know, when do the communities who are going to be most affected realise that they've handed over power to a radically reactionary Tory administration, which is, which is really going to make their lives worse? Uh, how long does it take for these things to play out? And then what happens? What well, happens and what, and, and what, and what or is or that will, reaction? Or then? will they play out? Do you know what I mean? I mean, I don't think if you make a shoddy decision uh, based on uh, lies, essentially. It's going to take a long time to admit fault with that, I think. And people tend not to, uh, when they've made those kind of decisions, unpack that as, as, oh, I was had or I was made a fool of or whatever. Like, I don't think that's going to happen. I think, I don't, I think there's just going to be a far messier um, realization than that. Oh yeah, you know, I, I'm not suggesting that they're all going to switch back and say, "Oh, we're really just nice progressive people and we, we made a terrible yeah. mistake." What I think will happen is, though, that there will be, will be discontent. There will be deep, deep instability. Um, you're going to have a very incompetent administration in both Britain and the US. I, I mean, I think the immediate problem actually is incompetence. You know, I mean, the Brexit itself is is is, is probably the most incompetent political phenomenon we've seen mm. in our time. You know, it's it's uh, by their own admission they just don't know what they're doing. And there's no management of that process that's at all convincing so far. And there's no reason to think it's going to get any better. It's going to get worse as you get into the nitty-gritty detail. The Tories are going to fall apart even, even more. And Trump's administration is going to be extraordinarily incompetent, except in, you know, the negative sense. It's, I mean, it's going to attack regulations. It's going to do all that sort of stuff. But in terms of having a positive agenda, you know, it's, 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 it's going to be error-prone. It's going to be driven by this 
narcissistic blowhard who, as we know, as we were saying, just kind of reacts to stuff uh, by just, you know, upping the ante with the rhetoric. That's all he knows how to do. So it's going to be very incompetent. It's going to be very chaotic. And so it's not so much that people are going to say, oh, you know, I made a terrible mistake and mm. I was really wrong and I, you know, mea culpa. They're go- but they're going to be experiencing a kind of chaos. Yeah. And then the question is, how do they react to that? And it's hard to be optimistic about this. I mean, because, we, again, historically, we know how people who are already insecure react to even further insecurity is you up the ante, you know, and, and you have these forces in play. This is why, you know, Steve Bannon is there in the Trump administration. Bannon is there to say, when it all goes wrong, you know, well, actually, it's those blacks who are to blame. Yeah. It's, it's those Jews, you know, it's, it's, it's those Jews in the banking industry. I mean, Bannon ran, I mean, the last ad that, that, that the Trump campaign ran, you know, had, had sort of pictures of three Jews, you know, saying these are the bankers. I mean, it's, it's absolutely out of 1930, you know, the 1930s. I mean, just saying, you know, these are the people who, who really run things. And so the only reason it's going wrong, the reason why Trump is going wrong or Brexit's going wrong is because they're still in charge. The liberal media, the Jews, the hangers-on, the parasites, you know, who are Hispanics and blacks, the people that, you know, Theresa May characterized. You remember, you know, Theresa May, for God's sake. I mean, you know, somebody who's this kind of, you know, mainstream conservative, uh, you know, in, in, in her speech last year to the Tory conference, you know, people who don't belong anywhere, you know, people who belong, don't really belong anywhere. These cosmopolitans, you know, who are the 48% of people who voted to stay in the, in the European Union, they don't really belong anywhere. You know, there's a rhetoric being built up, which is, which is, which is can only go in one direction, which is to up the ante and but to the, make it worse. And, and this is one of the direct, irrespective of what either administration achieves or doesn't achieve. Um, one of the direct effects, which we know now will embed itself in, in political competition, particularly in electoral competition, there's some very important elections coming up in Europe this year, is that the success of that sort of rhetoric, dialing up the, uh, the emotions of those particular groups through the use of, you know, tropes and arguments which are familiar to anybody who, uh, uh, you know, with, with, with even a passing familiarity of European history in the 20th century. Those now will become the tactics of, uh, of people. I mean, Trump, uh, you know, Finch describes him as a narcissistic blowhard. And in, in, in some respects, he's not the guy we have to worry about. Okay, we have to worry about him now. But it's what comes after him, you know, what... Uh, uh, who are the people, the parties, the individuals, the movements that will be emboldened by the success the success of these guys? The I mean, if you look at you know by the Tory Party conference, I mean the the rhetoric at the Tory Party conference about foreigners. You had the Home Secretary talking about uh, looking for companies to supply lists of uh, their foreign workers uh, to government. This would have been unthinkable at a Tory party conference two years ago. Now it is part of the mainstream. And that is one of the really worrying effects about this. And it feeds into a sense, I think, that one era has ended and another one is beginning. And it looks like a very threatening place. Uh, various people were saying over the last week or so, uh, you know, there's a, Google is doing its annual research into, you know, uh, how many people on Google this year have been asking if 2016 is the worst year ever. And, you know, I think the numbers are up a little bit. But a number of people are saying in reaction to that, 2017 is set to be a lot worse. I would say so, yeah. I mean, I think that it's, it's you can't... This, we're, we're turning into this kind of era, as Pat was saying, and you can't imagine that all of a sudden, you know, within the next couple of years, it's going to snap back to, you know, this kind of 
progressive, polite uh, fantasy um, because that is just fantasy now. And I think that the 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 lid has been lifted on any kind of decorum across politics. Once you start being, you know, outwardly racist in in an American presidential election, once everything um, is on the table in terms of, you know, just outright lying and the, the fact that even the pretense of, of pure politeness is gone, then that has ramifications for political campaigns all over the world. And, you know, the the, the Trump campaign and, you know, the Brexit referendum campaign changed political campaigning potentially for the next, you know, 20 years because now all, all bets are off. I mean, you can basically do anything and you can, you can say anything and we're not engaging in this um, pretense of, of politeness anymore Um that, you know, this idea that, you know, oh, it's always the small things that trip people up in politics. I mean, mm. it's just that all of that is gone. You know, ever, ever, all it's just been thrown out. And I do think that with the, you know, the French and German um, elections in 2017, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're talk, talking about two countries where fascism is, is again on, on the rise. Um, you know, the idea that, yeah, you know, maybe Marine Le Pen could win, you know, that this is being said outwardly as as a thing, you know, probably not now because it's going to be a contest where two people are going to try and outright wing each other, um, which is also incredibly depressing. Um, and then, you know, you look at what's happening with AFD in, in Germany. And yeah, it's it's terrifying. And I do think that 2017 is going to be the year that we will see the fruits of this chaos bear terribly. How is, just the one which is really, I suppose, closest to home for us in this bleak vista, Pat, how is Brexit likely to pan out over the next year? Or really, do we, is, it, is it a car that's out of control? I saw Gideon Rackman in the Financial Times a couple of days ago saying it wasn't just a choice between a hard Brexit and a soft Brexit. There was also, he said, the, likely, the, the possibility of what he described as a car crash Brexit, where the whole thing just comes off its wheels. This um, is where you, they cannot agree a transitional arrangement and, uh, to, to, I mean, we, they, Brexit they, they, isn't they going to happen Article 50. Until, until 2019. Mm. So the hard effects, uh, if you like, of whatever legal and institutional changes uh, which would affect us in terms of, uh, of of cross-border and east-west commerce and the arrangements that are on the border and and, uh, and so forth. They won't kick in until Britain actually leaves the EU. I think in 2017, we will become more aware of what the parameters of Brexit is likely to be. Theresa May, who has been softening her hard Brexit rhetoric in recent, way, uh, in recent weeks, said the other day that she will make a speech early in the new year, which will um, outline her thinking of Brexit. There will also be parliamentary debates in Westminster before um, Article 50 is triggered, uh, is triggered in March. Uh, so I think next year we will, uh, we will know more. I saw the Gideon Rackman piece uh, in the FT. And while it is, uh, it's certainly possible, I think, that you end up with a car crash Brexit where nobody, where neither Britain nor the EU can agree on what they want and Britain's membership of the EU simply lapses. And you'd have to uh, what you with no see, trade arrangements and no arrangements on movement, I, I think, people's I think or any, any of that I think what you'll see stuff. in the first six months of this year and uh, the first six months of 2017 is you will see uh, the City of London, big manufacturers, uh, big business interests putting pressure on the British government 
to uh, to make clear what their post-Brexit plans are and at the very least to uh, seek to continue member uh, membership of the customs union after 2019, whether as a permanent or semi-permanent arrangement or merely uh, a transitional arrangement. So I think we will know an awful lot more in, in, in six months and possibly three what months. What should the Irish government be doing in this situation uh, or has it really any, any kind of room for manoeuvre at all? Does it just sit tight? It's got some elbow room with the British uh, with the British government, the relationship between the two governments is better than it has been. But we, there is no indication so far that the British are taking what the Irish government are saying to them uh, sufficiently serious for it to materially affect their negotiating position. So James Brokenshire, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, isn't even on the Cabinet Brexit, uh, uh, the Cabinet Brexit Committee. Theresa May simply says, we don't wish to see a return to the borders of the past. That's parroted by Brokenshire. No indication of what that may actually mean. What the Irish government wants is a special some sort of a special dispensation for uh, for the North. But it needs the British to seek that and it needs the EU uh, to uh, uh, to cooperate in terms of a protocol to the exit treaty uh, or whatever. The detail of all not, that... That may not be supported by the, by the DUP First Minister in Northern Ireland either. I suspect in the, um, in, in, in the event it will be, whether or not it is the same First Minister in place in 2019 is another matter uh, entirely. I think the danger for it would be while um, people in Europe are well disposed towards the success of the peace process and uh, and so forth, which is one of the reasons why the Irish government has been coating all its Brexit rhetoric in uh, uh, with references uh, to the peace process. They will enter the negotiations with the British uh, on uh, on Article 19 and on the, on the exit deal with their own interests in mind, not the interests of Northern Ireland. And they'd be particularly looking at places like Spain, be looking at their own, uh, their own regions uh, and so forth, the implications that a special deal uh, might have for them. So uh, to ask your question, there are things that the Irish government can do. We have no indication at this stage as, well as to whether they can uh, affect a decisive influence because there's such the enormous there. complexity in this, you know, I mean, both in terms of, as you say, the ramifications for all the other countries and, and, and regions in Europe and the, the various interests which they represent, often in conflict with each other, plus the sheer complexity of the machinery it's of vast, administration and legal apparatus and everything. I was speaking to one senior British official during the year who... Uh, uh, who thought this last summer? Who thought that the scale of what was facing the British government was greater than anything any British government had attempted in peacetime? Well, right, and that's true. You know, like the the the, 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 like the administrative task, and, and you see, it's not just administrative. It means then that, that that almost nothing else can find space. You know, that this is the, part of the insanity of it, which is that you know it's not as if this is the only thing going on in the world or going on in Britain itself. You know, but but nothing else is going to be able to find any space, and. I I I think there's a very strong chance of a, a that, that car crash Brexit. I mean, in the sense that, in in the end, the simplest thing to do is just say we're leaving. That's it. No deal. We're just going. Uh, and not it's not to employ thousands of civil servants uh, uh, to work. Every yeah, night. you know. Yeah. I mean, they still have to try and figure out the the aftermath. But in terms of short term simplicity, and when you've got very complicated situations and you have big political pressure. The, the easy, short-term, simple thing is often what just ends up being done, not because it's the right thing, but because it is the simple thing. The fear I would have is that, 
you know, wh wh where this is leading is towards a vacuum of political authority in Britain itself. Um, it, it, one of the most interesting books of last, well, of still this year, <laughs> just about, was um, Craig Oliver's book, who was uh, David Cameron's spin doctor. And he wrote a book, of, you know, an inside diary of the whole campaign. One of the really interesting things was, you know, his, the penny dropping. You know, so he's been, he was, he'd been David Cameron's spin doctor, you know, using the Tory press. You know, the Murdoch press is on our side. The Telegraph, we have all this kind of stuff. And they will hammer, hammer away at Labour. They will destroy Labour. They will destroy all our enemies for us. And then suddenly realising in the middle of the Brexit campaign, oh God, we're not their enemy. And they're doing it to us. And the shock. And you realise, you know, for any Tory Prime Minister, uh, they're now in a situation where going against the Tory press, just that, that alone, leave aside all the other complications, right? So turning around and being Michael Collins, you know, who's going to be the British Michael Collins? Who's going to say, look, we really tried our best. This was the deal we got. We think it's okay, but it involves the following, uh, you know, climb downs on what we said we were going to get. Being that Michael Collins means you're going to get shot by Murdoch, you know, and I'm not sure that there is a Michael Collins figure. I, I cannot see anybody who has the political authority in Britain to turn around and say, look, folks, wake up here. You know, yes, we vote for Brexit. Yes, we've tried to deliver it. We've done the negotiations. This is what it is. And it involves paying into the European Union budget. It involves accepting 80% of European regulations. Um, it involves some elements of free movement of so people. We've got some kind of deal on that. We've got a few deals on a couple of other things. I mean, they'll be slaughtered. I mean, the, you know, the sun going on, but we're still paying into the European budget. Where's the 350 million a week, you know, that we were promised? Um, the telegraph going on, but all these regulations that we were, we were told we were free from, that we're going to have to accept the vast bulk of them. You know, where's the realist who's going to have the authority to, to be able to turn around and do that? And I, I just cannot see. The Labour Party is, is, is completely inert as a, as a political force. Um, Tony Blair thinking. Uh, <laughs> well, does that tell you everything? But you know, the, the, the Liberal Democrats are actually being smart in that they've actually realised there is a forty-eight percent there who, who need a voice, but they're still a very small, you know, very marginal political force. So it has to come from within the Tory Party. Is there is there a figure in the Tory Party who's going to be the Tory Michael Collins? I, I I just can't see it, and and therefore you have to think that. The logic is going to be don't do anything that gets the Tory press on your back because we've seen how much they can destroy a Tory so press. So that means a very hard Brexit. It means a very hard Brexit. And, and, and the problem then is that if you're going to have a hard Brexit, you may as well, in a sense, then just turn around and say, just look, just let's just go. You know, let's not do these people the courtesy of pretending that we're dealing with them. They are the enemy. We're out of here. And, you know, we're not even going to go through much more than the motions of, of, of negotiation. And that's one way it could go. The other way it could go is that there is still time for the 48 percent plus the other 10 or 15 percent who thought they were getting a very, very, very soft Brexit to gather their forces. You know, the, the, the things do happen in politics. I mean, Boris Johnson genuinely believed that it was possible for Britain to leave the European Union and still have a seat on the European Commission. I, I mean, you know, even saying that, you think, oh, come on, that can't be true. But it, it, he genuinely believed this. He, he wasn't lying when he said, you know, you won't even notice. It'll be so soft. You know, you won't really even notice it. It's, it's all going to be lovely. We'll have our cake and eat it. You know, have, an, have your cake and eat strategy was, you know, out of an extraordinary kind of naivety and game playing and, you know, Oxford Union stuff, you know, that just didn't really matter. And 
but there were people who voted to leave believing that this was the case because people like Boris were telling them that this was the case. Now, it means that there probably is a majority in Britain who really don't want a hard Brexit, really don't want it. There's a really interesting poll done um, which, which showed, asked people a really simple question. How much money would you pay? How much money would you lose from your own pocket in order to have no immigration at all? So, oh, immigration is such a huge issue. Uh, the majority of people, I think, I think 62% of people said nothing. I wouldn't lose a single pound out of my pocket to have no immigration at all. And even the number of people who said, like, how about a fiver a week, you know, to have no immigration at all, like, is really quite small. Mm. So, you know, so, you know, I mean, I'm talking about actually quite rightly about the, the rhetorical thing that's being unleashed. But the reason why we don't need to be entirely pessimistic is that it is still rhetorical. I mean, it was still all that kind of nonsense. And there is a point at which it rubs up against people's most basic economic interests, you know. And th- those polls are really very interesting where, 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 where you know, people are saying, I know, like, like, if it's a choice between keeping my income exactly as it is now and if I have to then have immigration exactly as it is now, then I'll have immigration as it is now. I just wonder, Una, I mean, taking all that on board, um, and there's a lot to take on board there, but if the idea that people always operate as rational actors in political circumstances has underpinned a lot of political strategy, you know, over the years. But it's not necessarily borne out by political events internationally, or indeed, perhaps even even closer to, closer to home more recently. Do people vote on that basis? Or do they, listening to what Fintan was saying earlier on about the, the broader economic and, 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 and social trends, is it the case in, in Ireland, what are people voting for? Are they voting for better economic circumstances? Is, is that ultimately for, for more euros in their pocket at the end of the month? Or are they voting for more kind of inchoate things, which are, which are more difficult resentments, aspirations, whatever they may be? I don't know. I think it's very different when you're voting for political parties to elect people to a parliament versus voting on these hugely emotional um, things like Trump for president, like Brexit. They're two very different things. And people aren't rational. People are irrational. People are emotional. And people, uh, you know, like pressing the giant red button once in a while to see what happens. You know, that's a, there's a lot of chaos and, you know, what if underpinning a lot of the political decisions that, that people make. In but there's a, there's a lot of anger. Um, and there's a lot of anger here as but there is also, elsewhere. But, but, but there's but, a disconnect between you know, how things actually function and what people want. And, you know, the people are very focused on outcomes. You know, I want this to happen, I want this to happen, as if in order to get those things, they can happen in, in, in the blink of an eye. One of the things that has, is happening in, in Britain is a failure, which is longstanding, of people to actually understand what the European Union is, does, how it's made up, how it acts and what would mean for that to go. These things aren't explained to people and, and that is a failure of, of politics in a, in a way as well. And it's a failure of political representatives not communicating political processes. In terms of how Irish people vote, Irish people vote for what's there. Um, and You mean the choices they're given? Yeah. So and a lot of the time that isn't particularly impressive. But the demand shows up choices. So one of the things that has changed about our politics and whether we haven't seen the same 
you know, sort of dramatic entries to the political stage that you've seen with the likes of Corbyn, with the most spectacularly with Trump, you're seeing it in France and Germany now, you see it in Italy with the defeat of, uh, of Renzi. There hasn't been that spectacular here, but there has been a rise of um, of, of parties on the, uh, on the left. Uh, there has been a rise of a sort of an anti-establishment constituency within our politics that is quite fed up with uh, with with the way the established parties have run. I mean, you know, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael in the election last uh, last year got uh, a lower share of the vote, just scraped 50% for the first time ever. You know, you don't have to go back too long. Between them, they were getting 85% uh, of the vote. Irish people vote for a variety of reasons like uh, like everybody else. Most uh, most of them, or at least rather a plurality of them, vote for somebody to represent the local area. Yeah. And they've consistently done that. I think in response to this, the rise of, um, of, of, of left-wing parties, of anti-establishment, establishment uh, parties, you know, most identifiably Sinn Féin and the, uh, the the smaller left-wing parties, as well as independents who are, who maybe are scattered across the political spectrum, but are united by their sense of not being part of the, of the insiders, not being part of the existing political establishment. And one of the things that has happened in response to that is there has been in the last year, I think, um, a, a sort of a shift to the left in the political centre of gravity in uh, in Ireland. So, you know, the programme for government that was negotiated between Fine Gael and, uh, and the independents was, you know, by conventional, uh, you know, by conventional metrics, more left wing than, say, the manifesto of the Labour Party. During, uh, during the election, it proposed to spend a greater amount of available spare resources on things like public services and uh, that are have been, you know, kind of identifying uh, positions of left-wing parties. a shift to the parties. left and a change in the way that we think about those ideological structures. So if you have a situation where, as Una mentioned, the French election, which is going to come up this year, you're probably going to have um, a contest between uh, uh, the goalless candidate, Fillon, and Marine Le Pen, who is... Uh, on one measure is a far-right economic nationalist, but another measure is probably far more in favour of state intervention and increased, mm. increased state expenditure. So those old, those old vessels are broken, aren't they, in some ways? Yeah, and I think what we're seeing is a disruption of, uh, of, of the existing you know, of the existing political establishments. That old, you know, if you look around Europe, that old kind of binary system. Christian large, Democrat, social exactly, Democrat. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah that, um, uh, that kind of alternated in many places in periods of power uh, since, uh, since the war. That's gone, largely as a result of going back, we spoke about earlier, largely as a result of the economic crash, which destroyed people's, uh, both their political affiliations, but the sense that politics as they identified with it, whether through social democrats or whatever. And the so- most of the social democratic parties were the first ones to go because a lot of them were in power at, um, the, time. Uh, at the time. They've since been replaced by, uh, uh, in many cases, by centre-right governments who are, now, uh, uh, who are now under pressure. The question, I suppose, looking forward then is what comes next. And in Trump and Le Pen and the Five Star Movement, uh, in, uh, we, we were beginning to see some of, some of the shape of uh, and of is what it is just about is it just about the the, the 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 impact of the crash or is it 
the broader point which which Fintan touched on that the crash in itself is is it is in itself only a symptom of of even deeper uh, economic changes in the in the way the which, crash is uh, the inflection point in post, in post industrial it's the crystallizing it's the crystallizing yeah. moment which demonstrates because of the pressures that the financial collapse puts on society it demonstrates to people that uh, you know they that 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 they feel that politics and established politics is no longer working for them and you know going back to the Irish situation I figure, you know, some ha- somewhere between a quarter and a third of voters now subscribe to parties and candidates that feel that the political process as heretofore established is not just not working for them, but is actively working against their interests. And you can see that springing up in all sorts of things, uh, not just electorally, but also things like the Apollo House occupation uh, and, uh, and so forth. And that dynamic will, you know, we sit here trying to figure out what's going to happen in 2017. And that is, that's an, that's an impossible task. But I think what we can say is that for sure, that dynamic will continue to be a part of politics here and abroad. And the questions are how it manifests And, and you, could, you, you, could, you could welcome that in, in many ways. If, if we had, as we have had Paul Murphy or somebody in, in, in here to, uh, today talking about Apollo House, they would see, that he would argue and his party would argue that it's part of a, a, a type of political activism which they represent, of which parliamentary activity and electoral politics is only one part and what they would regard as mobilisation around issues such as the water charges or as important or if not important yeah well i mean apollo house is a an example of direct action it's it's not about uh it's not the start of a process of solving the homelessness crisis it is a piece of activism that is designed to garner huge publicity in order for people to talk about these things it's also an articulation of frustration that issues that really really matter to people aren't being dealt with Um, And there is no sense that even though we are in a housing and homelessness crisis, that government and local authorities are operating in crisis mode as a response, that this is an emergency, that things need to happen that are really dramatic, that we need to come up with loads of ideas and interventions and why aren't we freeing up buildings and et cetera, et cetera. That uh, people, you know, the general public feel that this is an emergency and a crisis they're looking at the political response and they see inertia or, you know, inaction. Um, and that, again, is, is, a, is a disconnect. We don't hear um, politicians talking about uh, things as if they are crises, as if they are emergencies, yet people believe them to be. Although, to be fair, I've heard the relevant minister, Simon Coveney, talking at, at length about this as a, as a crisis. You one way or may not the, agree it's, it's with, just with, not with, getting with through. the proposals This is what I'm talking about, like the, the, those kind of, that's not getting through. People are not listening in, in the same way because language and communication and everything has changed. You know, like Simon Coveney might say something but he's saying it in in a way and talking about a process that people aren't engaging with anymore which yeah, is why uh, you're getting you know like that's a yeah, problem as well that's because the processes of government and administration are slow and cumbersome yeah, but they, again, need, this, they, they this have is to a, be in a rules based commu- yeah of course but this is a communications issue again and it goes back to the Brexit thing again is that people don't necessarily understand or want to understand those pro- those processes they want outcomes and when those processes aren't aren't explained to people and people don't actually understand how things work 
then you get I don't I don't care what you say I'm going to press this button I want this I you know I want this now and that's the like people talk want outcomes all the time that's what we're that's what we're seeing we're seeing politicians being able to tap into that by going okay let's get rid of the EU let's get rid of immigrants let's get rid of foreigners I'm going to build all these giant factories in you know Pennsylvania or whatever and so all of a sudden the the poor traditional politicians are left on the sidelines saying but that's not how things but isn't there, work isn't there a deeper thing there isn't there isn't there a legitimate reason for people to think and there's been a lot of talk about you know what authenticity means and indeed what what truth means mm. that people might make a decision that they're faced with Hillary Clinton's lies as they see it and Donald Trump's lies and for some reason they prefer Donald yeah. Trump Donald Trump's lies yeah. so yeah. that it, for example in in relation to this issue of housing housing and property they say words come out of politicians mouths but the reality is that that vested interests still have lobbying access that there are a whole bunch of vested interests around the issue of property in Ireland which have been well facilitated and furnished by the political establishment for for a very long time so I don't believe what I'm being yeah, told and if, if if there really was you know if people really want to do something about this there's a whole bunch of stuff about you know Tax, you know, putting punitive taxes on derelict or vacant sites, not allowing people to, to land hoard, mm. do a whole range of you things. See, the thing is, there's, there's good reason to to believe that that there isn't being that there isn't political movement on this because there hasn't been any great action on housing in Ireland. So, you know, there is also reason to to believe that there is nothing being done, and that creates you know a sure. So there is some justification for that. Isn't yeah, that absolutely. That, I mean, that, that, like, why wh- why why hasn't there been done? Why hasn't there been anything greatly done in terms of, for example, dereliction in a city that there are twenty thousand uh, vacant houses and apartments, you know, in a city where the vacant and derelict land that Dublin City Council audited is, uh, you know, seven or eight times the size of Stevens Green. Um, the fact that, you know, the, you know, this vacant levy or whatever, which was introduced last year, won't be payable until 2019. I mean, why? Why, why are those things happening? Why isn't there greater uh, action? Why isn't government ap- approaching something like the housing crisis with a sense of urgency? And, and, and the interventions that they do make are so ham-fisted and counterproductive. I mean, even the so-called uh, cap, which is just, you know, an invitation for landlords to, to raise rent 4% um, year on year. The minute that happened... Most of my friends who rent, and I rent as well, were, were talking about how landlords had emailed them the day of the debate, putting rent up 60% in some cases. So, so the things that Pat, they're I doing... I you're being called on to defend the political system. Here. No, but the things... As long as I'm not being called upon last, to defend the, the landlord. But <laughs> the last two-year so-called rent freeze, which gave uh, landlords a three-month run-in to raise rent, you know that went up 20-30%. My own rent went up as a result of that because landlords know that they can't raise it for another two years. The interventions that are being made are so... Well, this is one of the the problems with interventions in markets is that they tend to have all sorts of unforeseen consequences uh, like that. They also tend to be very difficult to unwind. But they're not unforeseen. They're like anybody could say, if you're going to put a so-called rent freeze or you're going to put a rent cap, you need to have other protections in place so that people won't take advantage of that. And that's the problem with, with, you know, interventions versus strategy. Interventions need to be part of a broader thing where there's actually loads of things going on that will prevent those things happening. And, you know, these... 
I just don't understand. Like, it's, in the, even I think it would be very unfair to ask Pat to, def- to, to defend any of those. Oh, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not, but I think it's I, interesting to look at the question, which is that uh, when we hear about these subjects, we hear a lot of heartrending stories about. And personally, I think that there's far too much confusion going on between the specific problems represented by rough sleepers who have a specific set of set, set of issues that need to be dealt with and and, and addressed in a certain way, and then and, and the horrendous situation of renters and the unavailability of housing and stock. Which is which is almost almost a separate point, but but it's not really. But like the homelessness crisis in itself is is you know three tier because for the first time in Ireland we have a new homeless category of people just being chucked out in the private rental market. So that you know how that can be happening and let happen month on month with with dozens of families. No, absolutely, that's that's a given. But just to say, just to say, our 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 newspaper and others are full of heartrending stories of people who are faced with you know terrible circumstances because of this. But we never hear the not so heartrending stories of the people who's who have a vested interest in one degree or another, whether it's because their pension fund is invested in 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 these large uh, right property funds, whether it's because they're so-called accidental landlords, whether in fact they just kind of sit at home and say, my property went up by 15% this year, I feel a bit better about things. There are all these vested ways in which capital and wealth is, in, is has, has an interest in property, the, which we don't hear about. But it's the we? function of politics to mediate those interests and decide on uh, on the public good. And in many respects, uh, I mean, as it is outlined, that, that has failed. I do think on one point, and as you say, I'm not here to defend the government, but I think it would be wrong to say that there is no urgency about this issue in government and uh, you know a suite of measures was unveiled in the summer the rental strategy has just uh, has just come out i think the test of whether that is successful or not and not to get into arguing about the it's in bits of the detail right now but the test of whether that's successful or not is something that will become apparent in 2017 which is uh, which is whether it manages to improve supply in the market because for all the ways that it manifests itself, the basic problem is there are not enough dwellings and there are more, uh, there is a rising population looking for uh, for pl- for places to live. Whether those government interventions uh, are successful or not, we will probably know in the first half of, uh, of Why, 2017. We well, we will see... Less pressure on the housing list. Uh, yeah, well, for, for a start... What and I mean, too much of this is uh, is analysed through the prism of whether it's good for Simon Coveney's leadership hopes or not, uh, and and that is very much a secondary uh, a secondary part of the political analysis of it. I think, but to 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 does Simon what does Simon Coveney need to indicate the success of this? He needs new supply coming on stream. He needs hoardings. He needs cranes. He needs a sense that uh, amongst people that something has been done uh, about uh, about a crisis, which is a very real crisis for an awful lot of people. Sure. One of the things that delegitimizes politics is the delegitimization of completely sensible and obvious solutions to social problems. So if you look at the underlying things that link, say, the housing crisis in Ireland with some of the global problems we've been talking about, a lot of them come down to the fact that we have had a capturing of acceptable political rhetoric since the early 1980s by a utopian neoliberal market-based philosophy, right? which basically says the only solution to any problem has to be found through the market. If you take housing, the market has never, in the entire history of Ireland, the market has never provided decent housing for roughly 35-40% of the population. It was the state's job. You know, 
it was perfectly legitimate for most of the history of the Irish state for the state to say, there's a real housing problem here. What are we going to do? We're going to build houses. Now, if you talk about people who are angry and frustrated and nobody's talking to them, I mean, the obvious thing they want to hear is, you know, could you actually build me a house? Like, would that be possible? You know, I mean, I, I grew up in a house that was built by the state. It was built by the state in the aftermath of the Second World War, when the economy was on its knees, when we weren't getting the kind of big, huge boost that the rest of the European economy was getting. And yet it was possible for, for the state to start building houses and to build them, you know, they, they were not, uh, God knows they weren't ideal, but they were decent, decent communities emerged out of them. People had some stability in their lives. It made people's lives a hell of a lot better. And not only did it provide houses for uh, a, a very large part of the population, but it also regulated the private housing market. This is the key point about social housing, is if, you, if the state is not building social housing, then the entire housing market is dysfunctional. Yeah. And this is what we've seen time and time and time again. So you come up with, I, I think Simon Coveney is absolutely sincere in wanting to deal with this problem. He cannot deal with it through the kind of prism that he has to apply to it, which is all he's allowed to say is these are our interventions in the market. But the market is irrelevant to the fundamental human rights and needs of a very large chunk of the population. 30% of houses built in Ireland in the 1970s were, were what we now call social housing. There was nothing wrong with it. There was nothing, it didn't bankrupt the country. You know, it, it didn't drive us into some kind of communistic Maoist society, you know. And this is only one example, but we see it in, 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 in situation after situation that the reason why mainstream democratic politics has lost legitimacy is it can't say the bloody obvious things, which is you have a problem, we have the solution. It has to go through this sort of ludicrous and increasingly failing, you know, uh, uh, crazy way of trying to say we will tweak the market somehow in such a way by incentivizing private individuals who in turn will meet your needs. Mm. It's never happened. It's not going to happen. And people know it's not going to happen. So why do people look at somebody like Trump? Well, well, you know, Trump, you know, is, a, as I said, a bombastic narcissist. But he, he at least gives people the illusion that the state cares about them and is interested in solving their problems. Trump doesn't say to somebody in um, you know, West Virginia, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to give some kind of incentive to you know, somebody else to do something. He said, I'm going to do this. I am your solution. I will do it. Now, it's, it's all nonsense and lies and rhetoric. I'm going to ring up the car company and get them not, yeah, to, I'm gonna, not, I'm not, not to send the this. jobs to Mexico. Right. So, you know, th this, is, this is the key question, right? which is the delegitimization of social solutions to social problems, the complete dominance of this increasingly crazy notion somehow that, that market forces are going to provide basic human rights for, for you know, huge parts of the population. That in turn is what has delegitimized politics because what you get then is first of all, politicians not being able to say the obvious stuff to people. But secondly, you have the takeover of politics by a technocratic managerial culture and language, which says to people, you know, we know the solution, you know, it's very complicated. Yeah. And it's so complicated, you, you don't possibly know it. And actually, reasonable individuals say, well, actually, I kind of do know the solution to not having a house, which is build me a bloody house. You know, it's, it, 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 it. so instead, you will get, you know, you, you will bring in vastly paid consultants to tell people that if you tweak the tax system in this particular way, or if you incentivize this, this particular group of individuals in this particular way, then you might possibly have some kind of an outcome to it. 
And you can only do this for so long. You know, it, it, it gets to a point where the, the, the average citizen, who is not stupid, this is not about people being stupid, it's actually about people saying, I want somebody to address the problem that I have. There are kind of obvious ways in which you might do this. Would you ever talk to me? Would you ever yeah. talk to me in a way which I mean, actually does address these things? A, 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 a lot of what you're saying is true, but I would argue that it's perhaps oversimplified, that, that the, the neo, you know, neoliberal has become this sort of term of abuse and probably quite justified in, in many regards. The ideology which emerged in the late 1970s as a as a right-wing pushback against reforms which had happened in the in the post-war years as exemplified by Reagan and Thatcher through the 80s and then the way in which social democratic parties or center-left parties like Labour or the Democrats in the states took it on board and Absolutely. created their own yeah. new democrat new labour version of it in the 90s and into you know up until about 10 years ago but that 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 second wave of the center, of what the center left did with it they you know both Clinton and Blair brought in a lot of you know brought in a, a lot of socially egalitarian measures in ter- you know in, in terms of what they did in terms of ameliorating Thatcherism for example in the case of Blair but that point then that happened at the moment of the crash where the where the curtain gets pulled away and as you described these tech- technocratic political elites who've all gone to the same universities all started looking very fraudulent didn't they they did but but the, the problem is that the social, Demo- <laughs> the social democrat principles which I know you hold to and I know you've spoken at the social democrat conference and, and I presume have some input into their policy, do you? No, no, I don't know. I'm, 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 yeah. I'm outside. I just I spoke as a guest, but obviously, I, you know, I've been arguing for social democratic policies in the Irish Times since 1988. But, but ironically, oh, yeah. but ironically, they yes, indeed, hundreds of years. They they, they seem to be under the under the most pressure. Is I mean, you yes. argued after the election yes. that Ireland had moved in a social democratic direction, but more broadly, it's those social. It, it's the it's it's the left of the Democratic Party. It's the Labour Party is in a shambles. The socialists in France are in a shambles. The the social democrats in Germany seem to be in a mess. Having to govern at a time of massive retrenchment but, in public But also of having, of having conceded so much ground. Yeah. So, so the bargain was, so, so you're absolutely right, I, I completely agree with like, So Blair, uh, you know, exemplifies this in a way, but Clinton as well, so Bill Clinton and Blair. But they both said, look, there's a new way, right, third way, which is uh, actually, you know, just, just actually let the market create all this vast wealth and don't worry about the inequality. Don't worry about the fact that it's all going to the top 1%. Because we'll, we'll, we'll get enough money out of it to be able to make some progressive policies happen. And there was no conflict. Boom and bust is over. Social class uh, conflict is over. All that's over. So it's just a technocratic problem of just letting the market just you go. You make as much money as you want. And we'll take a little kind of crumbs off it. And then we will use that for very good things. We'll do sure start programs for little kids. We'll, you know, we'll, 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 we'll try and put some investments into your inner cities. We'll do some nice things. Uh, and we'll also have social social liberalism. So we'll, you know, if you're if you're if you're gay, uh, if you're lesbian, if you're, you know, if you're if you're if you're if you're marginalized, if you're out there, we'll bring you in. We love everybody, you know. So it's going to be an inclusive kind of society, and it'll all be managed in this very nice way. Um, and it it doesn't work. So 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 the left ceased then to be angry. It it ceased to be combative. It ceased to be aggressive. It has you know stopped fighting. And if the left isn't fighting, it's dead. The left exists to struggle. It exists to struggle for people's basic rights, which do include, of course, all of those uh, huge advances that have been made by the left in terms of uh, human liberty, in terms of individual conscience, in terms of you know basic individual freedom, but also in terms of social rights. When the left stops fighting for those social rights, then some people on the far left are going to pick up that baton, but a lot of that anger is going to be you know hived off into this kind of uh, hateful, misogynistic, racist, 
you know, white ethnicity that, 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 that we're seeing on the rise. And yes, it is largely the fault of the left that that space has been vacated. A simple thing, just again, I don't like keep quoting surveys, but they can be very interesting. Right? There was a big study done across 40, 40 Western countries. It didn't include Ireland, unfortunately, in, in, in um, the middle of 2016. It asked people a basic question. What proportion of your society is Muslim? Mm. Right? What do people say? 30%, 40%. What proportion is going to be Muslim by 2020? You know, 50% of, our, of, of France is going to be Muslim. You know, the real figures will be 5 6%, right? Or less. How did the left let that happen? I mean, how did we let this fundamental misconception, uh, which is taking the, what was the rhetoric of the extreme right, we are being swamped by Muslims, has now become a completely mainstream belief well, I think by ordinary part, people. Like part of the we let it happen because we don't fight it. We don't actually come out and say, that's a lie. You know, and, and here's the reality. The left has to actually reconnect with reality and start saying, they're liars and we're going to tell you some kind of truth. But yeah, part, but part, part of that includes, in a British context, and you know, people that... Parts of the Labour Party would uh, have made this argument that they have to accept, that Labour has to accept, that the tolerance for migration is at an end in most, uh, for increased uh, migration, is at an end in most communities. Now, you can argue about the reasons for that, but it is a fact on the ground. And no, wishing, not on the ground. Wishing, no, no. wishing it were other. No, it is entirely it theoretical. Is fact, it, it, no, no, hold on, hold on. There's a really important thing to understand, which is that if you look at both Brexit and Trump, the largest votes for Trump and the largest votes for Brexit yeah. are in places which are monolithically white communities. The places that have least immigration are the ones who have be become most reactionary on the subject of migration. Yeah, that's, so that's, it's a not, question, that's a question no, no, of income no, no, as well. No, no, but, but yes, yes it is. Yes, exactly. London, this this is my point. This yeah. is my point, though. That act the actual experience of, of, of um, having multicultural migrant communities uh, actually makes people less likely to be anti-immigrant. Mm -hmm. So it, it is complicated it, and it, it, it is it, not it, the reality. That, that, that doesn't obviate um, Pat's point though because Pat's no. point is that that is a political they, reality they, they and people are they voting voting. Yes. But there are ways of fighting Sorry, because it is a false argument. I just think that like what you're talking about as well in terms of that, that you know, the frustration that people have but why people are voting for it is that what we haven't really talked about but what Fintan touched on a little bit there is that all of this is happening um, in conjunction with uh, progress being made and that there you know there is a huge like backlash to that now so at the same at the same time all of the nice lovey-dovey things that were uh, done um you know this is also a backlash of it and it's a really vicious backlash because at the same time where people are becoming more frustrated and voting for you know reactionary ideas and people you have um a sense that power is somehow being taken away from people who were previously in positions of privilege when in actual fact more people are being brought into the fold. So it is no mistake that this is happening at a time when there are, you know, more more tolerant ideas about when women are being, you know, gi given, quote unquote, more rights or getting more rights, when LGBT people are no longer being uh, jailed in, in most Western countries um, and, and when there is, uh, you know, a theoretical um, nicety around multiculturalism and all that kind of stuff. That is now facing a backlash. All of those ideas and all of those ideals um, is facing a backlash. And I think Fintan is right in terms of how the let did left that happen. And largely that's to do with, I don't know, something that you could call around, you know, the privatisation of equality or something, that all of these things had to have an economic dividend um, instead of actually 
doing things for the sake of goodness and for what for what is right. Um, and, and the fact that people are perceiving in, in Britain and, and in America, you know, and race has to co- come into it that, you know, uh, essentially middle class, white and largely male people are, are perceiving that their power is being eroded, creates a frantic, uh, fearful and reactionary sense. And that's what we're seeing. And we're going to continue that, 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 That's it. clearly part of it. But there is but there is another thing, too. I mean, I think, do think we, we need to bear in mind, first of all, that the Democrats won the presidential vote by by three million by by, by three million people that Brexit barely passed in the United Kingdom that in both cases the parts of both countries which which voted in for the Democrats and against Brexit were the most multicultural the most urban um, the most educated um, and also the most prosperous, ironically enough, given the kind of the political policies, which in particularly in America, which were being promoted, that that oh, it's only a few months ago, certainly not, not more than a couple of years ago, when we were talking about the emerging permanent democratic majority in the United States mm. because of the, the change. Those those places, those those coastal cities, which which are the places that are growing, those areas which are becoming more democratic in the United States, like Georgia, driven on the back of kind Texas. of 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 you know of technological innovation and new kinds of businesses. Um, so it's it's not a straightforward black and white picture. You're right about the counter revolution in a sense and and about the backlash, but it doesn't mean that it's that you know that that it's all inevitable, does it? But no. what's been seen is that there's political advantage yeah, to so it now to sure. adopting that, those attitudes. That, that always, and that will have a multiplier effect. Yeah, that is always there. Like those resentments are always there. Previously we engaged of a game of not stirring them up. You know, those kind of like racism, misogyny, um, anti-immigrant sentiment, Islamophobia, all those things are there. What we try to do, uh, you know, as people in democratic societies is keep a lid on them and the the lid is off. And when you have people coming in who do not engage in, in, uh, you know, that that kind of polite uh, version of society and stir all of that stuff up, of course those resentments are going to come. Who's the we and who ran the lid previously? Has the the lid been removed by Facebook and Twitter? Uh, I mean, I think the lid is being removed by so many different things, but certainly the way we communicate what we believe, how we speak to each other, how we engage with the world has changed utterly with technology. And yeah, of course, of course, um, you know, that's that's part of it. I mean, I'm reminded of a, a line from Orange is a New Black or one of the prisoners who's doing a life term for 20 years finds out about the Internet and says, what do you mean everybody has access to all of the communication and information in the world and people are still stupid? <laughs> on that note, we might have to leave because I know our engineer still, still, still needs to wrap. We've barely talked about Ireland at all, Pat. And it's probably struck me one of the things in 2017 is that barring uh, mishaps and accidents, which can, of course, happen, this will be the first year in about five years when there won't have been an, a national poll of any sort, no European election, general election, referendum or anything. Well, so you say. Yeah, we- <laughs> <laughs> That's my prediction. Yeah, and, uh, uh, put it down well, I mean, I now. think, look, you know, uh, how these forces... 
and these emerging trends, how they uh, impact on um, politics here, you know, will be affected, of course, by the the idiosyncrasies of Irish politics and culture and society uh, and so forth. But Irish politics will not be immune to them. Brexit and Trump are still two massive issues uh, for this country. I think on a domestic uh, in a domestic sense, what you'll see this year is an awful lot of the things uh, that the government kicked touch, which is one of the reasons why it's got to uh, it's got to its first Christmas, is that it kicked an awful lot of difficult issues uh, into touch. Issues like uh, you know m- several industrial relations issues, public sector pay. Uh, there's there's um, pay and other issues arising in transport companies. Uh, there's the future of the Eighth Amendment. Um, there's a whole range of water charges. There's a whole range of things which were either not dealt with at all or dealt with only to the extent that difficult decisions on them were put off until 2017. And that is going to, those those issues will not be kickable to touch, uh, I think, uh, over 2017. The nature of a kick uh, to touch um, uh, is, well, uh, of course, that somebody, throw somebody, somebody yeah. throws the ball back yeah. in. Yeah. 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 Never, never the underestimate their ability to kick things to touch. Well, we'll <laughs> Even see. out of touch, they can kick it back into touch. Yeah, well, well we shall see. Yeah, this, it sounds like it's going to be uh, fasten your seatbelts. It is, it is going to be a bumpy ride. I'm delighted to say we've got through this entire podcast without talking about Enda Kenny's leadership, and we're going to leave it at that quite happily. want to wish you all a happy new year. Thanks to Una, Pat and Fintan for coming in today. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks very much to our producer, Declan Conlon, and to our engineer, JJ Vernon, for all their good work through the year. Remember, you can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter. But until the next time in 2017, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening. 